At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrightses. Thank you for listening. Sex in the City meets murder, she wrote. That's the description of Wendy McLeod's comedy mystery Women in Jeopardy on stage at Georgia Ensemble Theater in Roswell. Later this hour, we'll hear from director Topher Payne, Actors Paris Sarder and Stacy Mellich about the story of three 40-something divorcee friends, and two of them have suspicions about the other's creepy new boyfriend. First, big news. Last November, the chain Regal Cinemas closed a favorite gathering place for Atlanta film lovers. The Terra Theater shuttered their doors after more than 50 years of screenings. Now we are thrilled to announce that the Terra Theater will reopen this spring, thanks to its new owner, Chris Escobar, executive director of the Atlanta Film Festival and owner of the historic Plaza Theater in Atlanta. He made the official announcement last night at the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival. The reason the terror closed in the first place was not a locally made decision, but instead it's kind of what happens when our historic cultural institutions are run by out-of-state corporations. And now, instead, for the first time in decades, the Terra will be both a sibling to the Plaza Theater and once again locally run. So Atlantans will now get to really have a say in the Terra's future, and that's why we're inviting everyone to join us in our reopen campaign to pre-sell $50,000 in ticket vouchers and gift cards at TerraAtlanta.com. And that'll take us across the finish line to get reopened in the coming months. Escobar said he has no plans of physically changing the establishment, but he wants to bring back 70-millimeter film and lean more into the mid-century modern aesthetic. Additionally, I'm very excited that there will be an exhibit component where we'll have and display restored antique projectors and cameras and aspects of film history that people can enjoy when they're there to see a film. An official opening date will be announced in the coming weeks. Now, with Black History Month underway, the National Center for Civil and Human Rights is offering a wide array of events. Saturday, 
February 25th, the Trey Clegg Singers will perform Lift Every Voice, a concert diving into the history of African-American spirituals and gospel music. Joining me now via Zoom to tell us more are John Hammond, event organizer at the Center, and conductor Trey Clegg, artistic director and founder of the Trey Clegg Singers. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thanks, Lois. John, there are many activities, a wide variety of events for families to be a part of at the Center this month. Would you tell us about the activity? What do you stand for? I'd love to. Well, What Do You Stand For is a wonderful opportunity for children and families to learn about the power of protest. We ask families and their children to use their creative energies and their critical thinking skills to choose from topics that they are very passionate about, and then to make protest posters out of those subjects. It it creates an avenue where children are able to find other medium of expressing some of the things that they feel very strongly about, and to do that in the context of working uh, and being supported by their parents. We're very excited about that. Children can also participate in a tiny election. What will they vote on? (laughs) Oh, you know, all the things that children love to vote on. What's your favorite subject? What do you like to eat at school lunch? And, And, you know, the subjects are obviously less important to us, but more important to them. And the key is to begin having children understand the connection between their passions and their voice. And by having these elections, they get a chance to see, you know, just how many voices there are, you know, how many votes there are, and to begin to become familiar with the process of speaking up and speaking out through their vote. Mm. I saw that Ambassador Andrew Young and journalist Ernie Suggs will discuss Suggs book, The Many Lives of Andrew Young. How is this discussion connected to the center's spring exhibition of the Morehouse College MLK collection? Well, thanks for asking that question, Lois. You know, there's only a loose connection between the book and the collection this year, this spring. We highlight Ambassador Andrew Young Uh, at this point because what we're doing is uh, beginning the celebration of the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. And as we all know, Ambassador Young was one of uh, Dr. King's chief strategists, both in that campaign as well as many others. And so while the connection is fairly loose between uh, the book and the exhibit, uh, what we find is that any means that we have at our disposal to celebrate all the wonderful elements and factors that went into that march almost 60 years ago, we are really trying to tap into that. Mm. Trey, your singers are performing a concert titled Lift Every Voice. This song was performed recently by Cheryl Lee Ralph at the Super Bowl. Before we discuss your upcoming concert, what were your thoughts on the NFL incorporating the Black National Anthem into the pre-show? 
I was enthralled. My first thought was, it's about time. Uh, <laughs> that was very exciting to me. And there are often many times when asked to do a national anthem, I'll ask if I can do Lift Every Voice for that moment. And so it's so far, knock on wood, it's been well received and I'm grateful for that. Lift every voice I see Chill earth and heaven Ring, ring with the did Lift Every Voice and Sing become known as the Black National Anthem? It became known as the Black National Anthem in 1919 when the NAACP adopted it as such. Incidentally, that was two years before the Star Spangled Banner became the American National Anthem. And also, it's interesting to note that famous African-American poet James Weldon Johnson Florida initially wrote the text in 1900, and it was recited as a poem by 500 students that year. But it was later that his brother, J. Rosamond Johnson, wrote the music for it. And they were both from Jacksonville, Florida, incidentally. And then, of course, the song just swiftly spread through the African-American communities across the United States and became just a rallying cry in the face of adversity and strife. So here we are celebrating it today in such a powerful way. What is the context of the hymn? The context of the hymn was that it received its first recitation in 1900 and communally sung within African-American communities after James Weldon Johnson wrote the text and his brother J. Rosamond Johnson wrote the music. In 1917, the NAACP began to promote the hymn as the then entitled Negro National Anthem. Of course, today we use the term Black National Anthem or African-American National Anthem. And I was really excited as a child to learn this because growing up in Fort Valley, Georgia, I had so many African-American teachers at school who promoted Black History Month. And all of us in the class learned the African-American National Anthem, all three verses from memory as children. And that had a profound influence on my life. It's such a stirring melody in addition to the text. It's difficult not to feel uplifted by it. Oh, my goodness, yes. And, of course, the arrangement that we're singing on this concert is the so-called concert version of the National Anthem, arranged by my dear friend, Dr. Roland Carter. Oh! 
an absolutely enthralling arrangement. Will you have a pianist or an ensemble, anyone accompanying? Oh, yes, indeed. My friend and colleague, Miss Portia Schuler Hawkins, will be our pianist. Oh, she is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Would you tell us the mission of the Trey Clegg singers? Oh, absolutely. I began the chorus in 2016 as a way of bringing wonderful people together with a commonality through music, with a mission of using music as a healing force to inspire the passion for reconciliation, unity, and equity. In what ways has Black sacred music inspired and uplifted throughout history? Oh my gosh. Black sacred music is interwoven into the fabric of American history from the get-go. You know, from the initial transatlantic slave trade, we know that uh, spirituals were first created by the enslaved Africans, many of them double entendre spirituals, the obvious meaning of the text and then secret meanings of the text by ways of communicating with one another. And so to preserve that history is critical and to teach it to the broad spectrum of humanity is very necessary. So we understand and respect all of our shared history. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Trey Clegg, conductor and founder of the Trey Clegg Singers, and John Hammond, interim head of programs at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. In addition to Lift Every Voice, what are some other highlights of Saturday evening's repertoire? Sure. We're singing the song, Ella's song, We Who Believe in Freedom Cannot Rest. That was initially written by Dr. Bernice Johnson Reagan and performed by Sweet Honey and the Rock, her group. singing to Moses Hogan spirituals, his arrangements of There is a Balm in Gilead and Elijah Rock. Dr. Yuzi Brown, my friend at Morehouse College, who will be one of the presenters and lecturers prior to the concert, has arranged two pieces that will be performed. The one, Ain't of That Good News, the spiritual, which will be performed by soloist, uh, soprano Laura English Robinson. And the grand finale of the program is Dr. Brown's mighty arrangement of We Shall Overcome. Oh, very dramatic and meaningful. On February 28th at the Center, WABE will host the premiere of season four in the Peabody Award-winning podcast Buried Truths, hosted by 
Hank Klibanoff. This season, we'll examine the 1958 killing of James Brazier, who died from a police beating and neglect from medical and legal authorities in Dawson, Georgia. John, this podcast is about cold cases, murders of African-Americans from decades ago. Why does it feel less like history than current events? Well, you know, Lois, I, I wish it did feel more like history than current events, but one of the missions of Center for Civil and Human Rights is to trace the trope of these historical realities as it relates to many people, but people of color, Black people in general, and then and then see how those manifestations, you know, sort of come into play today. And so when you go back to 1958 and you look at the case of James Brazier and how he was beat by police and died by lack of medical and legal authority, I mean, the difference, of course, today is that we have social media to draw attention to these things, and we see them far more frequently than we did then. So while it begins, you know, and has record and history, clearly there are still manifestations of this kind of hatred uh, that exists today. And social media sort of makes that more evident these days than it was at that time. How can people learn about Black history every month of the year at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights? Well, you know, I'll I'll answer it this way. One is I want to sort of be to recognize that during Black History Month, we are privileged to be working with PNC Bank, who is a presenter for a lot of the activities and, and presentations that are going on at the center during Black History Month. But every month, there is an opportunity to learn about Black history at the center. We do that in a number of different ways. We have ongoing programs like Truth and Transformation that look at what some of the realities are around convict leasing and the tragedies and triumph that existed uh, during those very dark days here at Chattahoochee Brick Company uh, in the West Side Quarry. We have, you know, through our director of education, we have wonderful programs that are digging up history curricula and adding value and reality and texture to far too many stories that were left out or omitted altogether or changed materially to take out the contributions and value added of, of Black people and other people of color. So there is a lot of activity that takes place at the center about reframing history, reanimating history with real stories of real people and how those real stories have impacted us today. John Hammond, interim head of programs at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, and conductor Trey Clegg, founder of the Trey Clegg Singers. Their performance, Lift Every Voice, a Black History concert, is Saturday from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Center. More information about that concert and the other events is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, 
We'll head to space with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes and learn about the Illuminarium's current experience. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Since opening in 2021, the immersive theater experience known as the Illuminarium has become a fixture on the Atlanta Beltline. Using 4K interactive projections, 360-degree audio, and in-floor vibrations, the Illuminarium aims to transport people to another world. In the past, these worlds have included an African safari and a deep dive into the art of George O'Keefe. And now the Illuminarium is leaving our planet and exploring the great unknown with their current offering, space. When space opened last summer, City Light senior producer Kim Drobe spoke with the Illuminarium's creative director, Melissa Graff, who began with a brief overview of the experience. Space is a really exciting uh, spectacle. I think we're all really, really excited about this one. It's something that I think the one thing that the big takeaway is that it's not a science show and it's not a planetarium. It's so much more fun and so much more immersive than that. And um, it really gives you that experience that, that I think a lot of us wanted when we were a kid and you dream of growing up and being an astronaut, right? I mean, who didn't want that when they were a child? So you come in and we have um, a small first room where you get to actually blast off in a rocket ship and go into outer space. So you start on earth and then you're floating amongst the stars. And that's something that, you know, these days you can't do unless maybe you're a billionaire. Um, <laughs> so it kind of democratizes that experience for everyone else. And it's really immersive, you know, again, with like you were mentioning the rumbling under the floor as the rocket blasts off and it, it, the whole room tumbles and, and you can see the, the jewel of the solar system or earth, you know, from, from miles above it. And then when you go into um, the second room, which is the big one where you spend most of your time, um, it just immerses you amongst the stars. You know, you get to see constellations, you get to see all of the planets up close. 
you go through a nebula, um, you're amongst the outer Kuiper belt, you know, which is where Pluto is. And it just takes you through this, this solar journey. And again, it's so immersive. You get to interact with the Kuiper belt rocks under your feet, you break them apart. Um, you can send stars shooting across on the floor below you. You can light up galaxies that are distant below your feet. There's also a scent system in there. So I don't know if anyone knows what space smells like, but it's a bit metallic. Then there's that amazing audio system as well. So of course, everyone knows there's no real sound in space, but we do have some amazing recognizable songs like Fly Me to the Moon by Frank Sinatra. We also have some composed music. And then we actually use some audio frequency from, from NASA. So the the scene where you go around and look at all the planets up close, you can actually hear the frequencies that were recorded. Um, so it's it's just a, a tremendous experience and it, it's so fulfilling for me. You know, I worked on it for well over a year in, in the, the nitty gritty of it all, but it's so fun to go in and see other people experiencing it. And, you know, somebody's mom <laughs> came to visit who uh, worked on the show and she was almost in tears because she wanted to be an mm -hmm. astronaut when, you know, when she was young. And she just felt like that's the closest she's ever going to get, you know, and we all get to leave our boot prints on the moon as you're walking around on the moon's surface, which only 12 people in the history of humanity have ever gotten a chance to do. So it's, it's just a really great experience. I think it's for all ages and everybody just seems to love it. Well, my understanding is that as a creative director, you're orchestrating this process from conception to execution. Did the mm -hmm. process for space create any particular challenges? Yeah, I mean, honestly, everything we do at this scale is a challenge and we're constantly breaking new ground and having to come up with new workflows. Um, a lot of what we do in creating the actual visuals is very similar to the visual effects you might do that, you know, that I've done and other people on the team have done for film or TV um, or commercials, but it's, it's the scale of it that's such a challenge. It's about 20 times the size of 4K footage. Um, mm. So, you know, it, I think we calculated that it would take something like over 9 million hours to render every single frame um, that you see in there because they're 22 foot high ceilings and it's just such a big space and we wanted it to be as realistic as possible. So rather than relying on game engine um, technology, which a lot of other uh, immersive experiences do, we really wanted this to be really, really high end to the point where some people have actually come up and asked if we we're able to film on the moon, which of course we didn't do. <laughs> but that's, you know, one of the highest compliments we can possibly get is when people don't, they don't understand how we could have possibly pulled this off because it looks so real. That's excellent. Well, that kind of leads to my next question. Previous experiences had solid source material, like the Georgia mm -hmm. O'Keeffe experience had the art book that it came from. African safari footage for the other. Is this the first experience that was created completely from scratch? Yeah, well, I think the Georgia O'Keeffe one, um, I mean, that was all from scratch, but like you said, it was based on something that did exist. So yes, um, we've done very different types of shows so far. So Wild, uh, the safari experience, they went and they actually filmed on location. And then, you know, we broke apart the paintings and, and made it immersive from Georgia O'Keeffe. So yeah, this is the first one that's Again, really high-end CG and, and, and graphics, um, just unlike anything else. So this was a tremendous challenge. Again, I think just to get all that computer power up and running. And you, know, you have to go through a whole pre-visualization process, which is something we're able to do in our lab space, which is most people don't know it's there, but it's just a door or two down from the venue on the belt line. 
where we built out a corner of the actual room so that we can go in and see things at full scale. Because if you're working on something you know, on your computer screen, you might think that the speed that something's moving or the size that it's at is accurate to you know, what it should be, but then you go look at it at 22 foot high and you realize it's, it's much too fast, it's much too slow, it's too big, it's too small. So going down and having that lab space has been really, really valuable. Oh, I can imagine. The exhibition starts off very grounded in American space history with the actual audio between Mission Control and America's first astronauts, but it moves from there into the unknown. How much of the exhibition is science versus science fiction? Right. That's a great question. Um, So most of it, really all of it is based in science. We spoke to a lot of experts. We did actually use some NASA imagery. Um, The planets were originally still frames that we got from NASA that we were able to breathe life into and and, um, add motion to. Um, But we do also have a a scene where you're on the surface of the moon and we have a bit of a time-lapse effect. And then we, we bring you to the future and there's a moon city, you know, which is based again on what people think a colonization of the moon might look like. So that part is potentially science fiction, but also somewhat in the realm of of where science could take us um, not that far away. And you are incorporating a lot of factual information within the experience about the solar system, about America's space program. Is there an aim for school groups to experience this? There is always an educational component that's available to school groups when they go through. There's extra pamphlets with just information on them. Um, but then, like you mentioned, we also have some text and some information um, on the walls to help people understand what it is they're looking at. So that's also you know great for the school groups as well. When you were looking to incorporate the NASA footage, how did you decide which historical clips to use? A lot of it, honestly, when you're working at this scale, comes down to what looks good um, at that scale. And it's not just because a lot of it's old and grainy, that actually held up better than perhaps we thought it would. But if a piece of footage is too shaky, right, if there's too much camera shake in it, that's something that's not very pleasing to look at. So we wanted things that held up well at that scale. And also just really, again, gave you that sense of awe and wonder. We have these amazing pieces of uh, footage in there where you know you're inside a capsule and you're looking at one of those round windows back at the earth and it's just kind of that sense of it's just tremendous awe I think the only way to describe it you know like you've seen them we've all seen those photos but seeing them at that scale and feeling like maybe you're really inside a rocket ship looking out at the stars or looking back at space is just incredible. The Illuminarium's Melissa Graff speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. More information about space is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This Saturday, February 26th, fiddle player extraordinaire Mark O'Connor will perform with his wife Maggie at the Buckhead Theater. When O'Connor joined me via Zoom in 2021, he explained why he and Maggie started playing music together. Well, playing with my wife Maggie, we've been married for seven years, and our relationship immediately began as a musical one. And then we ended up being married soon after. Uh, 
So we just love playing together. And it's, it's just amazing what we bring out in one another. And it is a very, very beautiful, comfortable and musical, artistic collaboration. And in many ways, I'm able to do, do in this duo setting with Maggie, what I've always really enjoyed about being a soloist is that I feel unencumbered and I'm, I'm not closed into a particular direction or style or even instrument. After years of playing solo by myself um, in concert, I started to getting, you know, get a little tired of that. And so I started forming groups and my groups um, historically, like most groups, have to have some kind of musical direction or it's just really incredibly difficult to harness. And I don't know if it's successful artistically if you put a group together and then you're going in every single possible direction like I can as a soloist or in my solo career in general. But in this duo setting, we can cover a lot of ground stylistically. So you'll, you'll be able to hear all my arrangements, whether it's you know two violins together or myself on guitar or mandolin. And I'm also able to cover a lot of materials from uh, the kind of the, the depth of my career. Um, you'll hear pieces that are fairly new and then you'll hear other pieces that go back 30 and even 40 years. Um, so the audience really gets um, a full plate of O'Connor music in this duo setting with Maggie. Fiddle player Mark O'Connor from our 2021 conversation. Mark and his wife Maggie O'Connor play at the Buckhead Theater this Saturday. And more information is on the website markoconnor.com. Coming up, a look at Georgia Ensemble Theater's production of Women in Jeopardy, amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Wendy McLeod's comedic play, Women in Jeopardy, has been described as Sex in the City meets Murder, she wrote. The modern comedy murder mystery tells the story of three 40-something divorcee friends, and two of them have suspicions about the other's creepy new boyfriend. The show is a production of Georgia Ensemble Theater, opening February 16th and running through March 5th. 
Atlanta-based playwright and screenwriter Topher Payne is directing the show. He joins me now via Zoom with actors Stacy Mellish and Paris Sarter. Welcome to City Lights. Oh, hi, Lois. It's so good to be back. <laughs> hi, Lois. Great to be with all of you. Topher. From a playwright's point of view, what's special about this script? Well, I think it starts with what's special about the playwright. This is the third production of a Wendy McLeod play that I've had the chance to direct. Her best known is probably The House of Yes, which was adapted into a film a number of years ago starring Parker Posey, and then directed another show of hers called The Water Children, and Women in Jeopardy is one of those shows that a bunch of my friends have already had the chance to get their hands on. And I was very excited to be able to return to Wendy's use of language. She has an extraordinary wit and gift for patter and places her characters in the most extraordinary of extraordinary circumstances. And as a director, it's just really, really fun to lead a team through a story like that. Hmm. Stacy, you play the character Liz, who thinks yes. she, she's hit the jack pot with the new prospect. What, <laughs> what's your take on Liz's love interest? Tell us a bit about this guy. Yeah, give Liz's side of the story here. I want to hear it. Well, you know what? <laughs> if you're asking Liz, he is the most phenomenal man you've ever met. He is just so, I mean, one of the, the best qualities that he has is his sense of humor and how easy he makes Liz laugh. And also it's really important that he gets along with her daughter and has interest in being that kind of a full family. And she just thinks he's, he, his quirks are uh, endearing. <laughs> now there's, well, I don't know if it's fair to say there's a trope about dentists. I'm thinking Little Shop of Horrors, but... <laughs> You're not far off. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there's more than dental insurance involved here. Am I correct? Yes. That is the yes. suspicion. Okay. Yes. <laughs> well, Paris, your role is that of Mary, one of Liz's fiercely loyal friends. Would you describe the friendship among the three main characters? Yes, I think their friendship is a very close friendship. They've been friends for many years with their children through marriage, now divorced. And so they have Chardonnay Tuesdays, they have fun runs and book clubs, things like that. And so these women are a uh, they're a wonderful trio. And so when we meet this new person, it, it kind of breaks up this well-knit, very close trio that is a very loving, gotcha back kind of girlfriends, friendship that is unbreakable, but as fun to watch as, is it breaking? I don't know, but it's a- it's As Liz a, changes the rules. Yeah, Liz changes the rules because she's now has a love interest. So that is what's breaking up the fun run book club, sensible women dynamic trio here. 
All of the women in the play are divorced, and as Mary describes, women in sensible shoes during, <laughs> doing fun runs and book clubs. You already alluded to that, Paris. What does this, this play say about divorce and midlife, all of you? I think one of the foundational things for each one of these women, you know, when the friendship trio formed, all three of them were married and raising children. And over the course of the time that they have known each other, each one of them have had a marriage end. Liz is the was the last one standing for a period of time and had the kind of curse and gift of a very charming husband who everyone in the room loved, her girlfriends loved. I think it's one of the things that draws Liz to a guy that only she can see what makes him special because she spent an entire marriage married to a man that everyone kept telling her how lucky she was to have him. And I think the story of Liz and Mary and Joe finding a point where they could say they do not need a partner to feel complete. And then Liz branches out of that, not by saying I do need a partner to feel complete, but that I just genuinely want one. And it causes Joe and Mary kind of on separate tracks to consider exactly where they stand and what they want now. So they're in that moment in our lives when the kids are out of the house. Do you even need a house that big anymore? Asking all of those questions about what's worth keeping and what, what is it time to change? It also feels like uh, these women are getting a second wind in life. You know, uh, this new romance, a new spark, a new um, interest, it just this wonderful new chapters that are happening without them actually going out and looking for them. It's just actually happening naturally for them. This this wonderful new adventures that they're going, this new adventure, new love for Liz, new look at life, a new Mary sees all of a sudden seeing herself differently in the course of the play. Just, uh, I like this, that these women are getting a, a new spark, it sounds, feels like, yeah. Yeah, and and that just that whole idea of women of a certain age that are divorced now and moving on, you know, it is that statement that your your life is not over yeah more life to live and here's the next part of it and how are you all going to change and adapt to growing Mm -hmm. and it can be very fun and very scary and very adventurous and shocking and I didn't know I could do that or I I didn't know I wanted to do that it's just a it's just a bag full of wonderful new surprises that I like that these women are embarking on yeah And I think the genius of our playwright in that regard is by taking all of those feelings of uncertainty and possibility and dangerous adventures that we experience at midlife and filtering it through the lens of a paranoid thriller. (laughs) (laughs) Mary believes herself to be, increasingly so over the course of our story, the heroine of a Hitchcock movie. Oh, yes. 
and in our design aesthetic on the show, in costumes, in music, in the scenic and projection design, we have leaned in to that Hitchcockian thriller feel. As Mary becomes so self-assured in her identity in the greatest Hitchcock film he never made, that she starts pulling other people into it. She starts finding willing scene partners in kind of her (laughs) fantasy existence and finds her own romantic possibilities in that, which I think is a really good one-to-one on what newfound romance feels like is someone someone who's willing to engage impossibility with you. Oh, I love this description of a noir midlife comedy mystery. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. We're putting that on the poster. Thank you, Lois. We needed the <laughs> Yes, perfect. <laughs> perfect. Well, tell us, you, Hitchcock had such amazing music for his films, and I understand you have original music for this production. That's right. With Paris as Mary and Velika Jessica as Joe, we have our two Hitchcockian heroines making their way through all of these dangerous circumstances in the dark streets of Salt Lake City. And so I've been spending a lot of time with the production team listening to the scores of Bernard Herrmann, specifically his unused score for Torn Curtain. There's an entire lost score for that film that was never used in a Hitchcock movie, and we've had the opportunity to pull motifs from that. But what's interesting in the storytelling that we're doing at Georgia Ensemble is Paris and Velika, as our Hitchcockian heroines, are played by Black women in circumstances that we associate commonly with a white actress. There was never a Black female lead in a Hitchcock movie, and that's his bad luck and our bad luck as audiences. No kidding. Diane Carroll would have been an amazing Hitchcock heroine. Where's that movie? And and so in looking at the music and the influences of Bernard Herrmann, we started folding in orchestral versions of music by Black artists. So it's Bernard Herrmann and also... Prince and Rihanna and Beyonce and Tina Turner, so that it's a little bit of the familiar with a little bit of an element that never existed in the source material. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz's discussing the play Women in Jeopardy with directors Topher Payne and actor Stacey Melich and Paris Sarter. Paris, you are channeling your best Grace Kelly here. Oh, yeah. I am actually, I'm actually, even though we're Hitchcockian, I am very much channeling Angela Lansbury in a sense. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's so funny because I really... I watched so much Murder, She Wrote, and I was like, finally, I can put all this TV watching (laughs) to practice. And it's wonderful. But yes, it's very much Grace Kelly and Tippi Hebber and all all of these wonderful lead actresses in this 
made up Hitchcock film that I've created in my head. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Who weren't just white, but they were these blonde Ice queen. They were yes. the whitest of they whites. They were very white. And <laughs> Velika and I are very beautifully chocolate. And it's wonderful. And our approach is wonderfully, I love it. It's very, at George Ensemble, they will see how Black women react to Liz's boyfriend. No one has told us to dial it, dial it back. And I love that. I love that Velika and I just get to be ourselves as Black women and reacting as Black women and just having a great time and now and not having any trauma attacks. It's just it's just us doing this show and it's <laughs> and making up this murder mystery as we go along. Or is it a murder yeah. mystery as we go along? <laughs> is he a serial killer or a monogamous killer? Exactly. We don't know. Or do we? I don't know. <laughs> well, Stacy, how does Liz cope with the fierce loyalty of her friends, not to mention their fears for her safety? Well, a lot of it is behind her back. Number one, when it is brought to her attention, she does, she does hold her own, but in the end, she really doesn't want to lose them, but also doesn't understand why they can't see what she sees in this man. And, you know, so that's what's happening. I think it's, it's very scary for her, but in the end, I don't believe they really think they're not going to have each other in the future. Oh, well, that's heartening. So he, the dentist doesn't break the mold of these friends. It changed, the, the relationship changes just changes. as any group of friends and someone ends up getting married or more serious. And it's just that, that innate love for one another that will still be there, even though you're not together every day. It's funny you say that, Lois, because the the last time we were rehearsing one of the crucial final moments in the show, it's the final moment we see the three of them together and ended up deep in discussion on who are the three of these women in this final moment together. What is their physical relationship to each other in what ways do they reassure each other or convey where they're at in that moment? Because, you know, I think when we're when we're very young and smarter than we are later, we have the expectation that things are constantly going to be changing and everything is so exciting. And, and then later, when you're older, everything is stable and settled. And then you get there and... I don't know about y'all, but I'm still looking for the stability and predictability everybody promised me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and friendships amongst people in their 40s and 50s are just as vulnerable, just as petty, just as enthusiastic and deeply felt as they were on the playground. And that's tempered with the lessons from time and experience, but it doesn't change any of those feelings. All that changes is that you learn the coping mechanisms to deal with them. Now, we've talked about the comedy, murder, mystery genre, this play in habits. Are theatergoers taken through the traditional 
murder mystery twists and turns before we find out the real story? Oh, very much so. Very much so. We delight in Mary, in particular, on her glamorous lady detective journey (laughs) as she keeps going to new and mysterious places like a snowboard repair shop (laughs) and that's comedy baby you know (laughs) and begins to by embodying the physicality and assurance of this dangerous woman that she believes she needs to be in order to save her friend, Mary starts to find the authenticity of that and that she actually does love the unfamiliar. She loves being the forbidden lady for a younger man. She starts leaning into it. And in those classic detective novels, you know, any, you know, Hammer detective novel, it's all about the forbidden new areas and communities and environments that you've never dared to go to before. Director Topher Payne and actors Paris Sarder and Stacey Melich. Women in Jeopardy from Georgia Ensemble Theater is on stage at the Roswell Cultural Arts Center through March 5th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. City Lights senior producer is Kim Trobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.